This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening and uh, welcome to the RBS uh, main tent here at the Edinburgh Book F Festival. Um, I'm Ian McQuirter of the Sunday Herald and it's my immense privilege once again to introduce to you Professor Neil Ferguson, Conservative historian, Harvard professor, TV presenter of uh, The Ascent of Money uh, and also Civilization, uh, and also punk rock enthusiast, though now he, as he tells me he's more inter interested in jazz. Neil's become something of a fixture, as I'm sure you know, at the Edinburgh Book Festival, where he adds some much-needed grit to the rather woolly liberal atmosphere that tends to attend uh, literary gatherings of this kind. Uh, mind you, anyone who heard him last year in this tent laying into the banks uh, for the way in which they've misappropriated uh, the money of the people and have introduced a form of communism for the banks will know that the old uh, categories of left and right don't really apply so much in this uh, particular crisis. Anyway, this year Neil is back with uh, his latest apocalyptic work, which is uh, Civilization, uh, the West and the Rest, also known as uh, Civilization is the West History. Um, and rather like Karl Marx, he believes that Western capitalism is currently collapsing under the weight of its own contradictions, uh, that it's lost the killer applications that gave uh, Western civilization its ascendancy five centuries ago, and having allowed a financial aristocracy to misappropriate the wealth of nations, uh, we're now drowning in debt led by America. Meanwhile, the East, uh, centered on a Renaissance uh, China, is rebooting the world order uh, in Asiatic mode, having rediscovered a version of the Protestant ethic. Anyway, all scary stuff, and later we'll have plenty of time to talk about the current crisis uh, as Europe collapses under the weight of sovereign debt and the world slips back into recession. But first of all, uh, Neil is going to give us his overview of the last 500 years, how the West ascendancy <laughs> arose, and where it's going now, which is down. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much, Ian. I always feel it would be just so much simpler to let you carry on explaining <laughs> what I think uh, and then leave me out. Um, would certainly be more relaxing. It's a pleasure to be back in my homeland. Uh, it's in many ways the perfect city, Edinburgh, to talk about civilization in the sense that I understand the word. Take a little time, if you haven't already this week, to look at the statues of Adam Smith and David Hume in the Royal Mile and think a little about what it was that they saw when they thought what civilization meant and how it worked. In my most recent book, Civilization, what I try to do and it made you laugh, is to sum up actually 600 years of world history in six chapters. And the reason that I think this is a worthwhile exercise is that when I look at what my teenage children know about history, the first thing that strikes me is that they know a few isolated fragments but have almost none of the bigger picture. So here's the big picture, ladies and gentlemen. About 106 billion human beings have ever lived. 
and 94% of them are dead. And a clear majority of them were and are Asian, probably around 60%. Westerners, depending on how you define the term, if you take, say, Samuel Huntington's definition in The Clash of Civilizations and define the West as essentially Western Europe and its colonies, former colonies of settlement in North America and Australasia, Westerners are at most 19% of the world's population today. Now let's look at wealth. It may interest you to know that today there is around about $195,000 billion of wealth in the world. I know this because Credit Suisse worked it out. <laughs> Most of this wealth was made after around 1800, and 66% of it, this I worked out, is today owned by Westerners. So that 19% of the world's population still owns around about two-thirds of the world's wealth. And the point of civilization is to explain why that is. How did that come about? And the answer is there was a great divergence. That's not my phrase. It's actually taken from an excellent book by an historian named Kenneth Pomerantz. A great divergence not only in economic terms, but also in geopolitical terms. And this great divergence happened after around 1500. If you'd gone on a tour of the world, say 600 years ago in 1411, you would not have seen any evidence of this. You would have regarded the most sophisticated civilization in the world as being China's. Ming China, with its great cities, Nanjing, would have seemed far more impressive than any part of the West. Even London, which was one of the biggest cities in Europe at that time, was a tiny, smelly little hole by comparison uh, with Nanjing. So the point of the book is to explain the great divergence that happened after around 1500 and to reflect on what it implies for us today. Let me give you a sense of what the great divergence meant. In 1500, the average person living in China was richer than the average human being living in North America. As a result of the Great Divergence, which continued from 1500 right down to our time, to the late 1970s, the average American became more than 20 times richer than the average Chinese, even accounting for differences in the prices of non-tradable things like haircuts. If in 1978 the average Chinese had left China and gone to live in New York, he or she would have found him or herself about 170th as rich as the average American. That's what I mean by the Great Divergence. And it's one of the most important things to grasp about modern history. But it's not just economic. It was also geopolitical. In 1500, there were about 11 European countries. Some of them weren't even recognizable as nation states at that time, but they, they were around about 5% of the world's land surface, 16% of its population, at most 20% of global economic output. 
1913, these same 11 countries plus the United States had become global empires, which accounted for around 58% of the world's land surface, roughly the same proportion of its population, and a staggering 74% of global economic output. So the great divergence was both an economic and a geopolitical phenomenon, and a medical phenomenon. People in the West, in the imperial metropoles, lived much longer by 1913 than people in the rest of the world. And that divergence continued right through until the 1970s, with very few exceptions. Understanding why that happened seems to me to be profoundly important. In fact, I can't think of a bigger challenge for a modern historian than to figure out why the world became so unbalanced in the space of half a millennium. You can't just blame imperialism. This is when I prove once again that Ian is right to characterize me as non-fluffy. <laughs> it would be nice, would it not? And many people in this country cling to this uh, belief that if we could blame all of what I've described on empire and then spend our days feeling guilty for imperialist exploitation of the rest of the world. The problem is, it doesn't work. Why? A, because empire was the least original things that, thing that Western states did. There'd always been imperial structures. China was an empire. There had been empires in the ancient world. History is mostly the history of empires. So it wasn't, it can't be explained in terms of empire. The Indians had their empires. The, the Turks had their empire. We can't explain much by blaming empire. It's not the distinctive thing about the West. And in any case, point two, after the empires went, after decolonization, which was mostly over and done with by the mid to late 1950s, the great divergence continued for another 25 plus years. And in some cases, it still isn't over. There are some parts of the world which continue to fall further behind the West, even now, half a century after the age of empire. So what's the answer? It's not geography. It's not national character. You may think it's one or other or both of those things. How many people here have read Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel? How many people have read Ian Morris's recent book about how the West ruled? These are great books, by the way, but they're wrong. <laughs> you, great books can be wrong. And the reason they're wrong is really it's easy to explain. If geography and national character explain the kind of divergence I'm talking about, what are we to make of the experience of Germany and Korea in the period after World War II? By imposing communist institutions on one part of Germany and one part of Korea and non-communist capitalist institutions on the other part, we conducted a wonderful natural experiment to see what institutions would do to people in the same geographical space with the same culture. Answer, massive, massive divergence in a really short space of time. We also ran the experiment with some Chinese people in Hong Kong and in Singapore. Chinese people who weren't in Mao's great and monstrous experiment in the People's Republic of China. 
And the same thing happened. So I'm here to tell you that Adam Smith got it right. Institutions and laws are the explanation for the great divergence. And that's a really important insight because it helps us to understand what it was that made the West get so much richer and more powerful than the rest. Now, you all, virtually all, have something like this in your pockets. And I'm hoping that you're not checking it now, <laughs> like my students do. I want to use this device to give you an analogy so that you really understand what I mean when I say institutions. Institutions is not an exciting word. It's not an exciting word at all. And if I had done a television series and written a book saying there were six killer institutions that launched the West on a path to prosperity and power, I don't think it would have had much impact on my teenage children who were the target audience. So what I said was, there are six killer applications, six killer apps that explain why the West dominated the rest for half a millennium. And it's a good analogy because when you hit one of the icons on your iPhone or whatever device you use, it does something which is cool and you don't really understand how. Because you, and nor do I, don't really understand the computer code behind the icon. Maybe a couple of computer scientists are here who do, but most of us just hit the icon and that's it. Institutions are like that. They're very complicated things. But what they do is very powerful and actually quite easy to understand. The effect is easy. How they work is complex. So what are my six killer applications? The six killer applications that made the West dominate the rest were first of all competition. Multiple polities, multiple corporate structures, no single unitary empire as existed in China. It's a point that Smith dwells on in The Wealth of Nations. Very interesting what Smith says about China, incidentally. If you go back to The Wealth of Nations, read Smith on China. He makes a very insightful point. He says, China appears to be in a stationary state. It seems to have reached some kind of plateau. But it could, in fact, be much richer if it had different laws and institutions. This man was one of the great geniuses of all time. And he's ours. <laughs> Do you notice the tartan trim? So my Bay City Rollers shirt, which I dug out for this occasion, because what I'm saying is, in fact, implicitly a celebration of the Scottish Enlightenment. It was the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers who understood what institutions could do. And maybe they understood it, Ian, because they had seen their own country transformed from essentially the Afghanistan of the, the northwest of Europe, uh, with its fundamentalist religious leaders and its warring clans, into the great dynamo of philosophical experiment, historical scholarship, and economic creativity that Scotland became in the 18th century. I mean, Scotland had a, an institutional revolution, and people like Smith were the beneficiaries of it. So competition is a part of the story, but it's not a sufficient explanation. You have to think of five other killer apps to understand why the West beat the rest. The second uh, killer app was science. 
the scientific revolution was an exclusively European phenomenon. There was no contribution whatsoever from the Ottoman Empire, despite the fact that it was right next door to where the scientific revolution happened in the 17th century. The third of the killer apps was the rule of law based on private property rights, an idea probably most closely associated with, with John Locke, but an idea put into practice with astonishing success in North America and not put into practice with predictable results in South America. Basing a society on private property rights and the representation of the property, basing a social and political order on the rule of law, that was the key to the success of North America. Not the resource endowment. South America has resources. But South America, for reasons I try to explain in the book, did not get the institutions that North America got. Hence the great divergence between North America, the United States, and Canada on one side, and Brazil or Venezuela on the other. The fourth killer app is a fairly simple one. It's the opposite of a killer, really. It's, it's modern medicine. From the late 19th century onwards, huge advances were made in the West in our understanding of lethal disease. Life expectancy was doubled and then more than doubled. And that is in itself a killer application. People in the West became longer lived and stronger than people in the rest of the world. Ultimately, those benefits were transferred to the rest of the world through the export of modern medicine via colonial empires, much maligned colonial empires, which clearly improved life expectancy in Asia and Africa. But there was a lag, a lag of maybe 50 years. The fifth killer app was the consumer society. Again, an invention distinct to Western Europe. The idea that everybody should have lots of clothes. Put your hand up if you bought an article of clothing in the last four weeks. Be honest. Come on. Be honest. Virtually all of us. We shop all the time. I actually bought this shirt today just to illustrate the point. In House of Fraser. I haven't been there for years. They were incredibly attentive. I haven't had such good assistance in a shop in decades. So the consumer society, alive and well in Edinburgh, a Western invention. And finally, Ian alluded to it, the work ethic. The work ethic, which Weber, Max Weber, wrongly thought was peculiar to Protestantism, but which turns out, in fact, to be viable in almost any cultural milieu if you create the incentives to learn. So I've banged on nearly too long. There's a sting in the tail, though. You've probably guessed what it is. Killer applications can be downloaded, and they can be deleted. In history, as on your phone. And the really striking thing about what's happened in our time is that the rest of the world has downloaded our killer apps. That is essentially the story of our time. The Japanese began this process. But in our lifetimes, it has spread to the most populous countries in the rest of the world, China and India. To understand what is happening in those countries, which I visit more and more frequently, you just need to see that they change the institutional setup and they change the institutional incentives. And the result is from stagnation to astonishing economic growth and social and cultural change. Let me give you one example of what is happening in our world today. Some of you may know the PISA tests of mathematical literacy or numeracy, let's say, 
uh, among teenagers. These are worldwide rigorous standardized tests. Do you know that the gap between the Shanghai region of China and the United Kingdom in terms of mathematical attainment is now as wide as the gap between the United Kingdom and Albania or Tunisia. I don't know what your teenage kids did this summer. Mine saw a lot of beach. The teenagers I saw when I was in Beijing two weeks ago were doing advanced algebra in lecture halls, summer intensive courses in algebra. So the message of civilization is, in fact, a relatively straightforward one. I don't think it's apocalyptic, but it's intended to be sobering. After 500 years of Western ascendancy, something to which we have grown highly accustomed as a civilization, it is ending on our watch. The killer applications that put the West ahead of the rest for generations are no longer monopolized by the West. They have been downloaded by the rest. Moreover, we appear to be in the process of deleting some of those killer applications in our own civilization. This is not a book that says decline is inevitable because it's a cyclical process. That's not how the historical process works. Anybody who's read my other books will know that's not what I think. The historical process is chaotic. It's not linear. It's not cyclical. Empires don't rise and fall like that nor do civilizations. In fact, what is striking is that civilizations can exist in a state of great complexity and sophistication for long periods of time and then quite suddenly collapse. I don't think we are necessarily going to collapse, but we seem to me to be riding for a fall. And unless we reinstall those killer applications I've described to you, from real meaningful competition in economic and political life right the way through to a work ethic in our schools and universities, we are going to go down. And we are going to go down much faster than anybody anticipates. It's not a slow downward path that you get. The collapse of a civilization is a terrifying and dramatic thing, as sudden as a forest fire sweeping through a jungle. But it's not an inevitable thing. We're not doomed unless we will our own doom. That's really the message of this book. But one thing is absolutely certain. The great divergence is over, and it ended in our time. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Neil. I mean, you, you say that um, uh, in the book that you located pretty much in, in 2007, you say the debt crisis has been a big part of this, uh, um, well, possibly chaotic collapse that you're envisaging. Um, do you want to take us through that? Because you say that, like all these empires, Spanish, French, Ottoman, the American empire is drowning in debt. One of the characteristic features of, of my work is that I'm concerned with financial institutions. That's something that's been true ever since my PhD on hyperinflation in Germany. And that's because financial institutions are very important, but they're quite hard to understand. We've seen in our own time how complex financial institutions, like the one after which this tent is named, 
can surprise us all in unpleasant ways. In the realm of public finance, there seems to be a, a kind of rule of thumb that says once a major state or empire is spending more than 25% of its tax revenues on interest payments, it's in trouble. Once it's 50%, the game is coming to an end. The US currently spends around 10% of federal tax revenues, this is the US federal government, on interest, a very large portion of which goes to the Chinese, who are the single largest holders of US debt outside the United States. But of course, that number could explode if interest rates were to rise. Right now, they're at historic lows. But the US is vulnerable to a significant upward shift in the risk premium against inflation or default. And that's something that I look at very closely, because it seems to me the US is beginning to move in the direction that the Spaniards moved in uh, in the 17th century, the French moved in in the 18th century, the Ottoman Empire moved in in the 19th century, and the British Empire moved in in the mid-20th century. The debt grows and grows until finally it becomes a major burden, and it begins to consume a rising share of, of available tax revenues. So watch, watch that closely. I don't know what Bernan Bernanke said today. I should probably have checked before I came here. But and he's we, up in his helicopter again. He's, he's, you know, maybe, maybe promising more inflation. I saw, I saw the Financial Times yesterday, or was it this morning, urging Bernanke to follow Paul Krugman's advice and promise higher inflation in the future. This is a dangerous game, ladies and gentlemen. The first thing I ever had published was a letter to the Glasgow Herald when I think I was 10 years old complaining about the rising price of school shoes. It's quite an amusing story, actually, because I, I was a, a, an amateur economist even at the age of 10. Some would say I still am an amateur economist. And I hazarded a guess that perhaps the reason that my school shoes were costing more each year to my mother's obvious concern, remember, I'm growing up in the west of Scotland, and facial expressions and prices are kind of closely linked. <laughs> Oof. Oof. That facial expression. I, I hypothesized in my first publication that perhaps due to improved nutrition, small boys' feet were growing faster than in any previous period. This was a, a bad theory of inflation, but as a hypothesis, at least, was, it was testable. This was 1974. Mm. Inflation in the UK in 1974 was in the 20% range. So that kind of institutional problem, when the institutions of the financial system, of public finance, and of monetary policy begin to malfunction, that is usually a sign of some more profound breakdown in, in a civilization structure. You look and you contrast um, this decline in Western civilization with what's happening in China. But looking just at the, the way in which Chinese finance operates, where it's basically determined by Communist Party bureaucrats uh, rather than through any kind of market system, do you not think that that is equally prone to this kind of financial overextension? I do. I, I don't want you to leave this tent thinking that I'm some kind of cheerleader for the People's Republic of China or the Chinese Communist Party. 
having just spent three weeks traveling in China, I, I am here to tell you that they too have a real estate bubble and they too have a mounting problem in their financial system. However, I think that they're in a better position to absorb the likely losses uh, that their banks will uh, suffer since they already have nationalized their banks. Uh, that, that's easier than doing it after the banks go bust. <laughs> that said, I think the Chinese situation is a precarious one. Anybody who spends time there can't help but be amazed by the sheer number of apartment blocks being built in every single Chinese city around the periphery. And uh, the financing of this is, is from enormous expansion of bank credit plus uh, local authority debt. Uh, it, does, it does appear to be cooling. Property prices in Shanghai have come down a bit. But this is not a system that is robust over, I think, a long time period. Uh, it's, it's not credible to me that China will grow at between 7 and 10% for another 10 years and another 10 years after that, nor do China's leaders think that they can achieve that. What's troubling is that if something went suddenly wrong in China, if they miscalculated uh, their policy, if there were some kind of bust, then one of the few things that's really keeping the world economy moving uh, would come to an abrupt halt. Every single uh, Asian economic miracle, including the original one in Japan, has been punctuated by at least one financial crisis. It would be very surprising if China avoided that altogether. Just looking, before we open it out to the, to the floor, just looking at your, um, uh, your killer applications, I mean, these key institutions, these uh, features of civilization which made it so successful. I mean, there's some conspicuous absences, mm. obviously. One of, one, of course, is, is democracy. Um, human rights, the American Declaration, all that side yeah. of it. Do you not think these were part of the reason why there was a Western ascendancy? I think one has to regard democracy in the sense of the election of legislatures and executives by universal uh, suffrage as a, a luxury good acquired relatively recently by Western civilization. I mean, most uh, Western states don't go to uh, democracy until, in fact, the 20th century. And it's a luxury good you can afford that, that can work once you have the rule of law established. And that's why the killer app is not democracy. It's a huge mistake to think that that's what a poor country needs, elections. What a poor country needs is the rule of law, security of property rights, and security of individual liberty. So you mentioned human rights. Human rights isn't a, a phrase that would have uh, meant a huge amount to Smith and his contemporaries, but rights, the rights of man, certainly would. And we, we've added this word human, which seems to me in some ways redundant, unless, unless we really want to talk about animal rights. We have one animal in the audience, but that's still a fairly small minority. Um, How dare you. And uh, so human rights is not something that was unfamiliar to the Enlightenment. They just didn't use that qualifier. But you can't have secure human rights without the rule of law. And that's really the killer app. Okay, let's throw it open to the animals and others in the audience. We've got two ki killer mics. Very one well at, behaved. One at each end. Um, if you can give an indication to me that you'd like to come in, we'll take them in groups of three if that's okay sure. with you. I'm going I'm to take them from this side of the audience first of all, then the middle, then the other side. So if you could take uh, that gentleman in the far corner who's waving a piece of paper, if you could take him first of all. <clears throat> He's stopped waving it now, so you won't. There he is. There he goes. 
I, I'm interested in your, your, your view in eco, econo, economics. Uh, one of the things that characterizes world economics is that there tend to be strong currencies uh, in which certain commodities are denominated, like uh, oil and gold, which is currently in the US dollar. There's a, there seems a sense to me that the major uh, Western currencies, the dollar, sterling, and the euro, are dancing around one another with a sense of vulnerability. Uh, various views have been uh, expressed about how, how we should underpin currencies in the future. Uh, some are talking about reintroduction to the gold standard, but we've created more paper than gold could back. The Chinese have, uh, have uh, suggested a synthetic uh, currency. Uh, I just wondered what your okay. views were on present currency very stability. Good. Thank you very much. This gentleman across here with the striped shirt. We can get the microphone to him. And then who else was around here on this side? Uh, yeah. And this gentleman down here. Uh, my question was similar question to the one that you Daniel. asked, Ian, about the, the missing killer apps. It struck me that education was missing, and it seemed to underpin two, four, and six of your apps. I was just interested why you hadn't included that in the list. Excellent point. And uh, if we could, uh, this gentleman down here, and if you feel free to identify yourself, we always like to know who's speaking. You can remain anonymous if you wish, but it's useful to know. Uh, Ian McQuarter, in his opening, <laughs> said, uh, <Am> I? <laughs> said that you That's Tan Yale, by the way. <laughs> said that you had some things in common with Marx. Is he right? No. I was being mischievous because he's talking about the civilization. And also, he's talked before about the way in which uh, uh, the finance capital, if you like, can end up uh, corrupting the system. Do you want to take that first off? I, I wrote a piece, I think, 10 years ago now for the Financial Times in which I said that I was, in many ways, a Marxist. It was just that I'm on the side of the bourgeoisie. Mm. <laughs> I mean, much of what Marx said about 19th century capitalism was illuminating. It wasn't all right. The iron law of wages was wrong. He borrowed that from Ricardo. The Hegelian historical model doesn't really work. But much of the more, I suppose, Dickensian elements of capital, uh, it's hard to argue with. And, and it was certainly true that inequality, for a time, increased in the, the 19th century capitalist economies. Marx failed to see, it's in a footnote in Capital that he makes the mistake, that the workers were also consumers and that therefore they, there was no real meaningful incentive for a capitalist system to immiserate the proletariat. The incentive was in fact, as became obvious in the United States, to make them richer. Uh, and that's why Marx was wrong. But there's, there's but an element... A, you wrote a, a pamphlet for the Centre for Policy Studies three years ago where you actually yeah. credited Lenin and uh, Hilferding. Hilferding, his, uh, Hilferding somebody who, who, for whom I have a great deal of respect. I mean, Hilferding, as a, as a Marxist, saw very clearly how financial capital would become more important in capitalism and big banks would become ever more important and potentially unstable parts of the system. This was certainly right. Interestingly, Lenin stole Hilferding's ideas for his great pamphlet, Imperialism, published during the war. So ever since I can remember, I've engaged with, with Marxist thinking, not uncritically in, in agreement, but because it is illuminating to, to think, as it were, materially about the historical process. I'm a, a materialist, but not a dialectical one. <laughs> the first question Currency, yeah. was about currencies. Forty years ago, the last vestiges of the gold standard were swept away by Richard Nixon. The gold window was closed. 
and we entered an era of fiat money, of paper currencies. We are, I think, witnessing the end of that era, and it's a chaotic end in which the paper currencies compete with one another to see who can be weakest. Uh, it's a kind of uh, contest between central banks to see whose printing presses run the fastest, to put it really crudely. And we, we now have a completely uncoordinated international monetary system. It's sauve qui peut. The Swiss, the Japanese, those who find their currencies appreciating against the dollar and the Chinese RMB intervene spasmodically. I have to say this does not look like a stable monetary Competitive order. devaluation happened in the 30s. Is Britain not in that game as well? Well, it, everybody's in the game, uh, Ian, to varying degrees. It, it, it's, it's simply that you can't have a, an enduring advantage uh, in this game because there are no anchors in a pure fiat system. The problem, which I think is very intriguing, is that under these circumstances, for fear of some future inflation, a fear which I think must be rational, more and more investors are turning to gold. And you might call it a kind of private gold standard that is creeping in. More and more people are valuing their wealth in gold or holding at least 10 or even 20% of their wealth in gold. Ron Paul, of course, holds all of his wealth uh, in gold. That's not been a good week for Ron because, as gold bugs will know, sentiment turned against gold. But I think that's a temporary uh, downturn. So the gold standard can't come back in its old form, but it is coming back in a kind of private uh, form. Uh, and that, I don't think, is going to last in indefinitely. At some point, we need to reestablish a monetary order. And that means international cooperation between central banks, as we saw periodically. Uh, in the 70s and in the 80s. Without that, it does begin to look a bit like the 30s. Instead of tariffs, competitive devaluation. The final question was education, about education. Education, education, You know, the Chinese had education. It's like the empire argument. Yes, but it, if you've got education in the rival civilizations, that can't really be a killer app if what you're explaining is the great divergence. Chinese had a tremendous system of education. They produce highly literate, uh, elites through the Imperial Civil Service competitive examinations. When you could do one of those eight-legged essays and had mastered however many thousand characters it was, you were highly educated. But you weren't educated in the way that Adam Smith was educated. And I think it's the, it's the content of Western education that really counts rather than education per se. Okay. Now we're taking some from the middle now. This gentleman here, if we get the microphone up and up to the back, if then we can indicate there. Yeah. <coughs> Question. Hayek or Keynes? Okay. <laughs> Hayek. We know the answer to that. Um, for the, Hayek. Yep. Hayek. That's, that's a short answer. answer. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You want a long answer. Okay, we'll take uh, up here. You said that we're in decline because we're losing some of the killer apps. And I think I would argue that in some areas, such as scientific progress and modern medicine, we're just as strong as we've ever been in the West. And I wondered if these things could compensate for loss in some of the other areas, or is the one app that's a, uh, the crucial one, such as okay. the work ethic? Right up. And anyone uh, up, up around here? OK, let's take this lady here. Um, in Britain, as a civilized society, we have um, a well-developed welfare state to provide for the sick and needy and infirm. And um, how does that impact on the work ethic? Okay. 
Well, thank you for these ex excellent questions. Hayek, because although Keynes was a brilliant thinker and the general theory is an astounding work, the constitution of liberty is better. Hayek was a, a thinker, it seems to me, who had a greater sense of the perennial. Keynes was an emergency thinker. You confront Keynes with an emergency, and he comes up with an answer. We made the mistake in Western societies of thinking that the emergency measures sketched in the general theory should be permanently instituted, that we should always be pursuing counter-cyclical fiscal and monetary policy. And that was our undoing. It's not that Keynes was wrong. It's just that you should use those theories in a crisis, not every year. More generally, it seems to me that the, the Austrian school of which Hayek was a, a part thought more deeply about the institutional foundations on which a, a capitalist economy must rest. And in that sense, they, I think, were more in the tradition of Smith uh, than Keynes, who was really a, a, a follower of Marshall and narrower economic thinkers. The, the key to Smith is the wealth of nations has to be read along with the theory of moral sentiments. And, and with Hayek, it's the same. Hayek is saying something profound about economic life and about the market, but he's also saying something profound about the institutions in which it's Im embedded. You know, when you look at scientific performance, uh, the, the thing that's striking if you try to measure that is the speed with which the rest of the world is catching up with the West. Uh, there are all kinds of different ways of, of measuring innovation uh, from the citation of papers uh, right the way through to uh, international patents. Uh, the thing that most impresses me is that, that we are, are really losing an advantage that was once overwhelming. A good example of this is that Germany will very soon be overtaken by China in terms of international patents granted. Now, the quality of Chinese patents is something about which we can debate, uh, but when you look at the, the sheer volume of output from China's universities, in particular fields like electronics, uh, it's, it's hard to, to imagine that they won't, by sheer weight of numbers and resources, narrow that gap substantially. So I don't think we can say to ourselves, well, we're still, you know, we still rock at science because the Nobel Prizes seem mostly to go to people at US universities. That, that kind of thinking, uh, I think, could be very, very deceptive. Uh, the gap is closing, and it's closing in the space of a generation. Today's graduates of Chinese schools and universities are just really, really well prepared. But uh, isn't there a problem here which comes back to the human rights angle? I mean, you couldn't imagine a Chinese Google, could you? They just don't have that kind well, of Well, you know, there is a Chinese Google. Uh, you could say it's just a, a, a rip-off. But actually, what's really interesting is the way in which the internet is evolving in, in peculiarly Chinese ways. The phenomenon of microblogs, which uh, I think came to public attention in the wake of the great uh, Wenzhou train uh, disaster. No, I, I don't buy the story that the Chinese can't innovate. This is the kind of most complacent thing that you will ever hear any American say, but we British also say it. The American line, I've heard this a hundred times, is, you know, Neil, take a look at this. Read what's on the back. Designed by Apple in California, assembled in China. Like this is a permanent state of affairs. So I went to Lenovo's uh, headquarters of research and development two weeks ago, and they showed me some of their new stuff. And I think Steve Jobs is right to step down now. 
<laughs> I do. I do. They actually have a really cool thing, which I probably shouldn't talk about. It's suspicion. It's secret. But it's actually quite, it's quite clever, because essentially you've got something that can be a tablet, can be an iPad, and they just slot it in, and it's a laptop. Same, same thing. So they are clearly innovating, and they know they have to. Whether you can have a truly innovative society without political freedom is one of the most interesting questions that my book poses. Can you be a, as creative as uh, Enlightenment Edinburgh if Ai Weiwei is having his studio demolished and his communications interrupted by arbitrary arrest? That is a question to which I cannot give you a definitive answer. There was a great deal of creativity in highly repressive societies in Renaissance Italy. And 18th century Europe was a place in which the Ai Weiwei's were routinely subject to uh, harassment and imprisonment. So again, we can't complacently say, oh, we've got the creative mojo, because it's a kind of implicitly, it's a kind of implicitly racist argument. The Chinese can't be creative. Oh, give me a break. A fifth of humanity is kind of in, unable to be creative. It just doesn't work. It's not a good argument. Final question, welfare. So the notion that it would be bad to have people starving in the street, the handicapped in wretched uh, poverty, suffering premature death, uh, is, is clearly a, a truism. And the question is, have the institutions that were created in the name of welfare in the beverage era, have they uh, entered a period of diminishing returns because of the unintended consequences of those institutions? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. We have created disincentives to work, poverty traps. We have, in fact, created a generation that has no motivation to learn because it has no real fear uh, of, of poverty. The, the difference between the Chinese students I encounter and the Western students I encounter is just, it seems to me, proximity to hunger, fundamentally. So I do think that the way that the welfare state evolved, particularly the way it evolved in the 1960s and 70s, uh, has had malign and uh, unintended consequences. Add to that the demographics of the next 25 years, and you see whether you look at the United States, Britain, or indeed any continental country you care to name, these institutions will break down. They're breaking down now. And we've got to figure out some alternative structure which deals with the problems of, of, of poverty in old age, poverty for those who are, are, are less gifted or are handicapped, solutions to those specific problems that don't disincentivize the able-bodied and turn them into scroungers and malingerers. That's what we have to figure out. I don't see much evidence that we're working on that problem. Okay, let's take another uh, run of questions here. This gentleman in, in the front with a red band around his neck. I'm sure that's not a political declaration, but it's... Uh, we are sitting in red chairs, actually, which is, I think is quite appropriate given all this talk about China. Uh, it would seem to me there's a, an interesting retrospective angle to what you're saying, and it is the 18th century when, because of Gibbon, I suppose, largely, there was a great concern about the enervating effects of luxury. There were anti-luxury movements. In North America, there was a great concern about the destruction that would be caused by paper money, or specie, as mm. they called it. And we seem to be, in some measure, seem to be rerunning uh, a concern that existed in the 18th mm. century. And you mentioned Adam Smith, of course. Um, do you think we're in a decline and fall situation? And the, uh, the classical sort of interpretation of that in 18th century society as decadence leading to decline and a surfeit of luxury, softening our moral fiber and complacency okay. 
um, being an outcome. Is that Take the lady part next of your you, hypothesis? Please. Thank Thanks. you very much. Take the lady next to you. There. My name is Judy Kamaki. I'm from New York. And uh, I have the pleasure of being in the country when Obama was able to get the health care legislation passed. And in listening to your six apps, one of the things that occurred to me was the idea about private uh, rights, property rights, and competition. Tea Party would say that the legislation for health care directly goes against the competition and the private rights. And I'd be very interested to see is if America moves in your direction, which is to provide better health care for its citizenry, do you think that's a movement in the correct direction okay. or in a backward direction? Perfect. And let's we'll take someone right at the back, I think in the back far corner there. That's decline and fall, the Tea Party. You, you talked about the importance of um, the law and property rights when you were talking about China. Can China continue its upward path if the legal system continues to be subservient to the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah. <laughs> right, okay, so All this in five minutes. Yep. <laughs> <clears throat> it's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> uh, the, the Gibbon argument is interesting, and, and it's one that I address in, in, the, in the book directly. Gibbon tells the story of the decline and fall of the Ro Roman Emperor over a period of, of over a thousand years. Now, if we can have decline and fall over that time scale, I'm fine with it. <laughs> but the point that, that more recent scholars of, of the ancient world, like Brian Ward Perkins, my former colleague at Oxford, make is that actually the Roman Empire in the West collapsed really quite fast. It was, was not a protracted period. It fell apart in the space of maybe three or four decades. Uh, and uh, that's something which is very important to understand. We, we tend to think of decline as a protracted process as part of a cyclical story of civilizational rise, zenith, and, and then gentle fall. The historical process suggests otherwise. What the historical process points to is that complex systems like empires or civilizations can exist on the edge of chaos for a long time, and then they fall apart really fast, like the Soviet Union did. So in most cases, imperial decline is not as quite as given envisaged. visitor. And the moral arguments, which, or in his case, the religious argument, uh, may not be the most uh, plausible one. This, this may be a case of mistaking symptoms for causes. Uh, and that's why I come back to institutions. The problem with the Western Roman Empire was that it entered a period of institutional uh, disintegration, literally disintegration, as well, of course, as barbarian invasion. The, the story of American healthcare reform is an incredibly complex one. The, 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 the key thing to recognize is that the US has the worst possible combination of an incredibly expensive system that delivers really substandard results. And that this is mostly an accident of history, going back to World War II and the notion that healthcare should be provided via uh, your employer-employee uh, relationship. And it's incredibly hard because of the power of path dependence to unravel that system. And so what ends up happening is it's kind of added to. And with each addition, it becomes, it seems to me, even more complicated and expensive. Uh, and that's why I think Obamacare was a huge missed opportunity, but because it didn't tackle the fundamental 
root problem of the system, which is the way in which Americans have health insurance. It left that intact and tried to create a system whereby if you weren't in such an employer-employee relationship, you got health care by pretty much the same expensive means. If you want to really get into this debate, I think the heart of the debate is between Paul Ryan, uh, who is the most intelligent figure in the Republican Party today. Sadly, he's not running for president, it seems. And his critics within the administration. Uh, there's a big issue about how far you can create meaningful market mechanisms in a system like the US system that would really deliver uh, efficiency. And I want to believe it can work that way and that moving in the direction of some more European system from where the US is today is likely to create even more of an escalation in costs. But it's a very, very technical and difficult debate. And I do think the problem, my big beef with, with Obamacare is not the Tea Party's beef. My beef with it is that it didn't really address the root problem of, of the system. Which brings us to China. And this is a very appropriate place to end the discussion, because there really is no bigger question uh, facing us today than the one that the gentleman at the back asked. Because China has downloaded five out of my six killer apps. It hasn't downloaded number three. There, there really is nothing resembling a law-based system. There is nothing resembling a representative system. The private property rights of the Chinese are protected as long as it suits the party uh, apparatus to protect them. It is a, a highly different system from the one that evolved in the West. And the big question is, can they pull it off? Can you have an a la carte westernization in which you take the things you like, but not that one thing that might lead to political freedom? My sense is, and maybe this is 50% historical study 50% emotion, that they can't do it. And that ultimately, to have a system which has all the things I've described from competition right the way through to a work ethic, but doesn't have the rule of law, doesn't protect the individual's freedoms or property rights, that that system cannot deliver the kind of creativity in science and in the arts that we cherish, but it also, it also can't deliver long-term political stability. The Chinese economic miracle is creating the world's biggest middle class. It is astonishing to see just how many uh, Chinese have passed the point where they have uh, wealth in excess of $10,000. It's a huge share of the society. You can't get to that level of wealth to own a home, to own a vehicle, to have financial assets, and accept the kind of quasi-feudal position of powerlessness that a one-party state insists that you accept. That's not to say that China's going to have its jasmine revolution tomorrow. I think this is something that will unfold over more like a 10 or 20-year timescale. But I don't believe that China's system as we see it today will exist in 2021, 20, uh, which is probably the date that I'll publish my next book. <laughs> Okay, well, invite I'm you getting back. old, what we'll can I say? That then. A brilliant five minutes, I'd like to say there, actually. But I just before you go, we can't let you go without asking you about current stock market wobbles. It's down 20%. Um, banks are having difficulties uh, borrowing on the international market. Sovereign debt crisis, where is it going from here? Are you asking for financial advice? <laughs> well, yeah. Because <laughs> that comes way more expensive than a, book, than a gig like this. I have, I have been saying... 
since 2006, when I was writing uh, and researching the ascent of money, that the financial crisis of our time will be much longer in duration uh, than anybody wants to believe, because it is far more like a depression than it is like a recession. And I have been proved consistently right uh, throughout every phase uh, of this crisis. What is yet to happen, I already alluded to, and that is the moment when the markets, including the Chinese, lose faith in the ability of the United States to service its vast and rapidly growing debt. When that happens, it seems to me, we'll shift into a new phase of the crisis. But we are, we are not, we're not there yet, and it may well be that some time has to pass before we get there. Uh, but I mean, the, the crisis is a profound one. The Eurozone is doomed to disintegrate, it seems to me. You can't have a monetary union without fiscal union. It just won't work. I said that at the time when it was created, and there you go. Uh, and it seems to me that the problems of the United States in fiscal terms, not only in terms of healthcare, but more broadly, are extraordinarily difficult to solve with the kind of political system that the United States has, which was not designed to run a world empire with a huge, uh, a huge debt burden. The Chinese are the last engine of growth that the world economy has, plus one should also mention India, about which I'll be talking at the official festival uh, tomorrow with Amartya Sen and others. One also has to mention Indonesia. One also has to mention Brazil. But you know what? If Europe and the United States are in the kind of economic trouble I believe they are in, the West is still important enough for that to be pretty bad news for the rest. And that may be the best note on which to conclude. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Just before you grab a bag of gold and a shotgun and run from the hills, just let me say that Neil will be signing books in the book tent, which is out there to your left, and you can continue the discussion with him then. But please, thanks again for these observations and enlightening examination of the Thanks a lot. I'm going to take you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.